Внимание, внимание! Говорит и показывает Мадифиус. Внимание, внимание! Говорит и показывает Мадифиус. Hi, welcome to Modifius Calling. I'm Josh O'Connor, and I'm a writer, producer, and podcast host for Modifius. I'd like to welcome you to Season 2. And it's been quite a while. It's actually been four years. Uh, and Modifius has grown by leaps and bounds since then. At the time, we were only just releasing some Octum Cthulhu products, but now we've got Star Trek Adventures, and Conan, and John Carter, and Infinity, and Mutant Chronicles, skirmish games, and board games, and lots of games by partners. There's a video game that's gonna be coming out, so we're gonna tell you all about those. We've got a bunch of new segments, like Echoes from History, which is all about bringing history to life to make your games better. We're gonna talk about the psychology of gaming. Of course, we're gonna have interviews with industry figures inside and outside Modifius because we like to support the hobby as a whole. My favorite rule, where we bring you great rules from lots of games and ideas on how to incorporate them into your homebrew systems. And wide-ranging talks about gaming topics over a few pints, which we like to call tanker talk. And of course, we're gonna to return to long-standing segments that we've always had, like what's on your table. So, without any further ado, let's say hi to our episode's co-hosts, and of course, there's me, Josh. My name's Charles Pritchard, I'm a writer with Modifius and a teacher. I am Zach Stanton, uh, anthropology student and role-playing game enthusiast. And game master extraordinaire, I might add. Thank you. Me and Zach are both in Chicago, actually. And where are you, Giles? Uh, down in a regional town called Shepparton in Victoria, Australia. And we've got a whole bunch coming ahead on the show today. Without further ado, let's get into our first topic of discussion discussion. Board games, card games, and RPGs, now's the time we ask, what's on your table? This is the time of Manivia's Calling when we talk about what we have been playing on the tabletop. So, Giles, what's on your table? At the moment, the, 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 the thing that we've been playing probably most consistently is a role-playing game, sort of dark fantasy role-playing game called Simbarum. Um, uses a D20. It's a pretty light system. Um, you have a... a collection of stats or attributes uh, there's no real skills listed at all so you've just got your set of of attributes and then you've got a, a whole bunch of special abilities that let you substitute you know instead of using this stat for my ranged attacks i can now use this stat or whatever it might be so it's a it's a pretty simple pretty fun light system um combat can be quite dangerous and yeah we've been having a lot of fun playing that can you tell us a little bit about the setting and what that's like yeah i the setting um is is fantastic if you if you get the chance um, go over to the Modifius website and have a look at the artwork or Google the artwork, Symbarum. Um, it's by a Swedish uh, role-playing publisher, I believe, called Jaringen. Um, and the artwork is just so evocative. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's a dark fantasy setting. That The idea is that there was this um, old empire has crumbled and this, um, this dark sort of malevolent forest is, is um, consumed much of where that empire stood uh, there's the sort of it's it's really I suppose if you were to draw a historical parallel um, the, the dark ages early medieval period um, for some of the the, the the main nation which is Ambria and then the barbarian tribes around them you know a little sort of mix of Viking and Pict and, and Scotti and so forth the elves in the setting are very dark and dangerous and um, it's it's got changelings. It's very sort of a very European, Northern European folklore sort of vibe to it. Characters can earn corruption and and become corrupted and become blight-born humans, where they, they sort of get you know these things climbing out of them. And, and it's it's a really really cool setting, and the artwork is just gorgeous. Absolutely love it. So, what do the mechanics of this game allow you to do that maybe other games don't? It's a really quite a rules light game system. Basically, you're rolling a d20 and you're looking at getting beneath your um, attribute. There's no skills. There's just a series of attributes, whether it's like resolute or cunning or quick or strong, your strength or whatever it might be. You know, if you're trying to, let's say, push open a door, then you might roll You might roll strong or the player character might put up an argument and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to use my, my, um, my cunning and see if there's a way that I can, you know, lift the door or jimmy the door so that it's easier to open. 
open or whatever it might be. So you've got those stats, you're rolling a D20, you're trying to get beneath them. If you're rolling and it's a, it's a versus roll where I'm rolling against you, let's say I'm trying to sneak past, you know, a, a sentry guard, then my stat would be modified by their stat. Um, so my stat might be mod- my my cunning or my my um, discrete stat might be modified by their vigilance stat, and so you know there's this sort of in- counterplay between these these things. Then you've got a whole bunch of special abilities that modify the game in different ways and let you do cool things. The idea of the game system where everything is modified by your opponent carries through into combat. So the player characters roll their accurate stat versus the NPC's defence or quick stat. And so the game master doesn't touch the dice. It's just the players that touch the dice. So it's quite interesting in that regard, and it took a few sort of games to get used to how all of that works. There are still a few little funky bits and pieces that uh, I'm not sure that I I like about the game system. But on the whole, I'm really enjoying it. The game system is fun, it's light, it's bloody, um, and it's 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 highly enjoyable. It's been good fun. I love the fact that the game master doesn't have to be involved in dice rolling in combat. Can you tell us how the opposing person's stat modifies your stat? How does that work? The baseline for a stat is the number ten. Let's say I'm fighting a, a, an opponent, and one of them's slow, and one of them's really quick. So I'm trying to hit the slow one. If the baseline stat is ten, then for every one beneath ten then I'm going to get a bonus. So if, if, if it's quick as seven, it's three below, so I'm plus three to hit it, right? If it's fast and it's got a stat of 13, which is three above 10, then I'm minus three to hit it. It's harder for me to hit it then. You, see, you, see, you know what I'm saying? So when the stats are laid out in the, um, in the rule book, when you look at the stats, it's got a whole bunch of things like, you know, um, quick, you know, is minus three and things like that. All of those stats that are listed for the NPCs are listed from the player's point of view. They don't actually give you the value of the, the NPCs quick stat or their strong stat or their whatever it is. It, it's just the way, the degree to which it modifies the player character. So the game master just says, oh, you've got to hit this guy. He's, a, he's minus three to hit. It's that simple. Another really interesting aspect to it is that the player characters roll damage, and damage usually is done in in steps. So you've got a D4, D6, D8, D10, D12, and the NPCs don't roll the dice. They just take the average. So if it's a D10, the NPC will just do five damage, or they do this damage. But the players roll armor. So their armor might be a D4, or a D6, or a D8, depending on whether it's you know light, medium, or heavy armor, and then. Uh, so they roll their armor versus the damage that the NPC is inflicting. Um, so it's, it's got a really interesting set of mechanics, and there's, there's a whole bunch of special abilities that modify how they work. Um, it's a lot of fun. It sounds like it's really not mathy. It sounds like it's really it would be really easy to throw together an encounter. Yeah, yeah. It's it's well, one thing that took my head it took my me a little bit to get my head around was when I'm looking at the stat blocks for the NPCs. It's they're written like. They uh, for the player how they're written as they modify mechanically as they modify the, MP, the the player characters. So it's not actually the stats of the NPC. It is how the NPC modifies the players interacting with it. So it's written from the point of view of the player characters. You know, this all, all the NPC stat lines, which initially was something to wrap my head around. Now it's it's just so easy. You just go in there. Oh, you're plus three. You're minus this. You're plus that. You know, very easy. It sounds fantastic. It sounds like you'd be able to throw together an adventure as a game master really quickly. Um, so that is something I did not know about and I'm really keen to check out. Yeah, it's good. Zach, what are you, what's your favorite game that you're playing? Well, currently I am playing the first edition of Dark Heresy. It's going very well. It's, it's a game that is a little bit on the more mechanical side that I like, but as a long-term 40K player, I really do enjoy the setting, and I like introducing my players who are not Warhammer 40,000 players to the setting, though I have been making a number of mechanical changes to the rules to fit more my my rules-light play style, particularly when it comes to psychic powers, um, and how could it more so instead of specific spells like in a D&D type game, it's more of, you know rules, um, how hard the role is based on to, to do some kind of psychic power is based on the magnitude of the 
what the the psychic player wants to accomplish with that. Um, it's a great game. Um, I if you have a even a mild interest in kind of very dark gothic science fiction, kind of a mix of the medieval and the and the future. It's a game I highly highly recommend to anybody. And what is the what is it, like? Pull out one really cool thing about the game. It's you have a mixture of future tech while at the same time my players are running around giant mile long spaceships. They are also wielding <laughs> regular swords and warhammers against <laughs> the enemies of the future. It's how I would describe it to a non Warhammer forty thousand fan is imagine if you shuffled together. Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu in the future. And of course, it's very metal, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, Bolt Thrower, a, metal ba a death metal band from the uh, early 90s, they have a whole album about Warhammer 40,000. So <laughs> it is the most metal science fiction setting. So you have a built-in soundtrack. Have yeah. you played that game, Giles? Uh, I haven't. I played 40K, the miniatures game, uh, many years ago, uh, but I have not played Dark Heresy. So uh, as somebody who's played 40K, how would you uh, how would you introduce a 40K player to it? Like, Well, it's a game where you're specifically playing not Inquisitors, but the, the retinue of inquisitorial servants that serve a, a Lord Inquisitor or a high-ranking Inquisitor. Um, my group so far is a tech priest, uh, a sanctioned psyker, who is played by Josh, and a cleric of the Ecclesiarchy. And basically, you are, you know, assigned missions by your Inquisitor to, you know, investigate, you know, potential threats of heresy or Xenos um, invasion or demonic presences. All right, so for what's on my table, it is Star Wars Fantasy Flight. And this is a game I've been eyeing for a long time. Jay Little uh, helped design the D20 system for Modiphius, and he also designed the X-Wing miniatures game. And he also was the designer, or one of the designers on uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition. Um, and the key component to all of these games is this special dice set. And the dice, there are dice for your skills, there are dice for, uh, you know, the skills of the opponent, there are, there are dice that are uh, simply luck dice, kind of, like, you know, you can roll a Force symbol, you can roll a Sith symbol, and that'll affect your game. Um, and I was really taken by the fact that you, I played this game once when my friend had the Edge of the Empire beginner game, and, you know, it was just a very simple introductory adventure, but, you know, I remember one thing I wanted to do during a combat, I didn't want to just shoot somebody, I, we had a speeder bike, and I just want, I said, can I take a, a brick and can I tie it to the, to the accelerator on the speeder bike and send it into the stormtroopers who are harassing that rebel over there, and the game master was like, sure, and so we rolled the dice, and the dice sort of said, all right, well, you had, you know, Three failures, four successes, and uh, like a uh, you know a special success or a boon or something like that. And so he was. This allowed him to be able to articulate what had happened and why. Okay, because of your you got one of the successes on your skill dice, so it's because of your skill with technology that you're able to do this and you aim it correctly and you knock out two of the stormtroopers because of the successes, and then also it ends up shutting down the power reactor. So. I really love the narrative aspect of these dice, and what I was waiting for to run the game, they also have these character cards which have like uh, adversaries on them, and they have citizens of the galaxy, and they have rebels and empire and stuff like that. So th my vision was I wanted to play the game using only the rules on the game master screen and in the core book, and these dice, which can help me tell the story, and then these character cards, which will be everybody that the players run into. Uh, and. The way we did, and no prep. I had there was a published adventure, but I decided not to use it. So the only prep was I asked the players around the table using microscope, which we will refer to later in this podcast. I went around the table. I said, "What do you guys want out of this scenario?" Somebody said, "Speeder bike race." Perfect. Done. Uh, another one said, "We want to be in a, a world in hut space." Done. Three. We want there to be imperial entanglements. Brilliant. And, you know, having been given this setting and having these cards, I was able to figure out anytime they ran into an NPC, I pull one of the cards and I'm like, okay, it's this guy. It's an Imperial agent. Perfect. Fine. And we have continued this game now to, I believe, two sessions probably coming on three. And at the beginning of every game, I just ask the players what they want out of this particular episode. Uh, whenever we go to a new planet, I consult. There's, this is a great thing about Star Wars. There's all these books that have been written by fans and, you know, DK books and all these different publishers. So, you know, you can get the game books or you can just 
go to Amazon and buy these books, many of them very cheap, that show like, you know, all the technology and all the worlds. Star Wars Atlas is a really great one. The Star Wars Technical Manual is another great one. So when, for example, we went to Kessel, it was like, all right, Kessel is a mining planet on an asteroid. There's a moon that has a bunch of stormtroopers on it. And I knew the players were approaching this planet. And, you know, given those bits of information from the Atlas, I was able to say, I was like, all right, I think I know what they're going to run into when they get to this planet. And, you know, so far it's been really great. It's, it's the only game I've ever played without any prep whatsoever. Um, and Zach, you've been playing in the game. What were your thoughts about how it's been going? Fantastic. Um, I enjoy what the players, the um, how invested they are into the game since they are deciding, you know, what exactly we're getting into. I think the kind of the character cards really help with just, you know, drawing out monsters and enemies and things like that. And droids. Droids, too. We, we recently procured, I spent the last of my credits on an astromech droid, and we all went around the table and talked about an aspect of this droid, the personality, things like that. And we've got this really unique and honestly very memorable character um, who typically would not be that important. An astromech droid, they're all over the Star Wars universe. But since we have this interest as a group, this character, this astromech droid, is now very important and has a very fleshed out personality for this particular game. I think I remember we either rolled on random tables or maybe we, we went around the table. One of the aspects of the droid is that it has multiple personalities. So I was like, okay, it's, had, it's been rebuilt several times. Uh, you know, from spare parts, and it's got old memory banks, and sometimes they kind of ghost up, like one of the characters in Dune, you know, like Alia, when she had the Baron Harkonnen popping up out of her past. So this astromech droid occasionally will suddenly bust out with a combat maneuver because it has a few circuits, dormant circuits, from like uh, an Imperial tactical droid, you know. If I recall correctly, the droid is very upset at being a slave in the universe, which is quite interesting. And even though it's an astromech, so it's supposed to communicate with beeps, it has some circuitry from a protocol droid, so it actually can communicate with the players, you know, using the basic tongue. So this is just a great example of how you can use uh, microscope or asking the players uh, and really flesh out something that, in, like you said, in many games would just be, you know, just sort of a window dressing or something. Hi, this is James from Mantic Games, and you're listening to Modiphius Calling. Modiphius Interviews. On this episode, we're going to hear from James Sheehan. He is the game developer for Fallout Wasteland Warfare from Modiphius. It's a miniatures game. It's going to have a lot of RPG and storytelling elements. Welcome to Modiphius Calling, James. The Fallout series is so mammoth as a video game franchise. Tell me about the challenges of bringing that to the tabletop. Fallout such a, a mass market license. You know, it appeals to so many people that actually, you know, rather than just be a war game. This also needs to deliver the, the more of a story experience. People who want that, and and all the shades in between. So uh, I wanted it to be able to be playable by people who wouldn't normally look at a war game. And I think in the same way, you know, I think Star, um, Star Wars X Wing's done a you know a great job of that. That if that had been a very typical war game, it probably wouldn't have the audience that it does. So to keep it kind of simple, but also still make it good for people who want a, a war game. And what sets apart the Fallout intellectual property from another post-apocalyptic property? There are a lot. Post-apocalyptic settings, there are, you know, have been many of them. The Fallout's got a really interesting mixture because it takes a lot of low-tech um, with sort of seams of high-tech running through it. So whilst it's post-apocalyptic and the nuclear war happens in 2077, um, and the recent game of Fallout 4 happens um, 100 years later. You've got this 1950s style in the production design, um, but all the tech kind of looks kind of 50s and the iconography is kind of 50s. But there's also elements of real high tech. So it's quite, that's an interesting mixture. I think when you see it, you kind of know that's what it is just by looking at it. But also it has a mix of kind of seriousness uh, and survival. So it's quite dark in places. Um, but it also has some irreverent humor as well. It's always had that. Um, and I think that's it's an interesting aspect because it punctuates um, the darkness of the setting with some light sections. A bit like um, films that have, uh, or even comics, they have sort of throwaway moments. 
And actually, they're really important because they serve to kind of highlight how dark things are. I think of like the recent Dread film, um, which is, I love, you know, 2000 AD is great and Judge Dread, but it was very much, everything was grrr, the whole way through it. And it's right. funny that it made me realize with the comics, they actually have a lot of humor in them um, and made me realize kind of how that really helps bring it out and makes it feel more serious rather than, uh, yeah, being one tone throughout. So that kind of humor is quite, um, quite big in fallout, I think, and really does make a difference. Uh, and it, even that can be quite dark too. <laughs> so uh, it's not always, uh, uh, yeah, it's not always just like pure laughter. Um, yeah. So I think it's those two elements that really give it a different feel than just being post-apocalyptic reality. And how do you work the humor into a game like this? Yeah, I think the actual design of the mechanics um, is probably doesn't have any of the kind of irreverence in it. But certainly things like the scenarios and the um, you know, cards and encounters can have some of that um, without there being too much, um, so it doesn't override it. One of the scenarios we've been trying out um, is called Super Duper Sweet, because in the world there's the supermarket, it's called Super Duper Mart. And I was basically made a scenario which is like Supermarket Sweet, uh, and both teams are just trying to get as much stuff. Um, but it's actually a competition that some raiders have set up to bring people in. It's like a, a tournament that people can come to. Uh, and it is just like the Supermarket Sweet. And in the actual video game, like in Fallout 4, there is a bit where the raiders have a battle which is watched by various people uh, sort of fight to the death so then it's all kind of done as a big show a bit like running man uh, in a way it's probably one of the more strange scenarios <laughs> that i've written others are more straightforward but uh, yeah i think there's there's a good chance to put lots of that in in the content but not so much in the game mechanics themselves and what about this combination you spoke of of old technology and new technology how does that show itself Whilst this is a miniatures game, there's also a lot of content within it, like story as well. But I wanted to make it a, an accessible game. And to get in the, the, the tech means it needs a lot of variety. And in fact, this is something that comes up a lot, I've found, in Fallout, is that there's such a lot in the world, all different types of creatures and the weapons and technology, um, armor, all these different things. But everything's relevant and there has to be lots of meaningful degrees of variety from um, like the small rad roach that might attack you to the giant death claw, because um, everything can kill you, just give it enough time. Mm. Um, you know, you're still susceptible, and you can't just kind of walk around and ignore things. That's a really hard challenge um, game-wise, because you think of like games where you say you were playing a role-playing game and you have your level 1 guys and your level 20 guys. Level 1 guys can't do anything. You know, they pretty much... Um, uh, useless compared to someone who's more powerful. So technology-wise, that had to also feature too. So you've got like small, um, you know, minor guns. You at one end, you've got the Fat Man, um, like mini nuke uh, launchers at the other end, which are horrendously powerful. And how to get all of that in in one scale? That's been an interesting challenge, both with weapons and the armor. And the uh, weapons, we have um, a system where when you roll uh, your attacks. Uh, the actual effects of them. Um, I, I don't like games where if you have a, one bad dice roll, you do nothing at all, because that's just frustrating. Right. Um, like in yeah, role-playing, and you get like 1d10, and you roll a 1. <laughs> it's like, well, that was great. <laughs> I finally hit him, I've done nothing. So what I've done is I've given a level of certainty. So damage-wise, your weapon will do a certain amount of damage, but there will be an extra effect on top of that. And actually, that is something you can't rely on it, because if you do, you'll probably die, because it might not happen. But there's a random effect on top, which are dice. So we have four different effect dice, uh, which allow us to portray all the different technologies and types of weapon, but to do it simply. So for example, we have a dice that potentially adds damage, uh, one that potentially makes you more accurate, so you're more likely to hit them, and one that's more likely to reduce the armor of um, the target you're attacking. And the fourth one are for special effects that covers kind of everything else that gives you icons you can spend on things that are on your cards. So when you see your card for your weapon, you know kind of what its feel is. If it's got lots of black dice, then it's a more damaging thing. If it's got more yellow dice, then it's more um, about armor reduction. Things like lasers, they're more likely to go through armor than they are to do lots of damage, whereas something that's like a missile will do more damage. So having that ability and the mechanics to provide lots of variety is uh, it was really important. And um, so far, it's, it's, you know, it's worked out really well, I think. 
So in comparison to other miniatures games out there, what sort of miniatures game did you set out to make? I think we always saw it as being a game with, um, in comparison to other games, relatively few figures in a way. Um, I think um, uh, we always say it's between like three to 30 models. And actually, probably, I mean, people will start playing with smaller courses and then obviously build theirs up as they as they get more. And the games we mainly played are like somewhere between 10 to 15 models each. But then there's also the factor of, is it a model-based game or a unit-based game? In comparison, there's so few models. Um, having a unit-based game where, you know, basically you've got, a, so you've got your four raiders, if you were to use them and they all do exactly the same thing, then, and you've only got, say, 12 figures on your, 12 models on your side. If you've got units of four, that means you've only really got three things you can do. Right. And that felt too, too limited. So what we did is we have a system where we started with activating units, but even at that point, you still had each of your models act individually. So you'd resolve one model, then resolve the next one. And that meant you had a lot more variety of what you could do with your actions. You, know, you could actually have your unit... Um, you know, fan out a bit, do different things. One could be hacking whilst another one's, you know, um, attacking um, or defending or whatever it might be, might be doing. So having a, a game which was kind of small teams um, on each side was, was pretty much where we started with, uh, and in fact, where it still is now. But there's still the option to have more, uh, and we actually do have plans for a, um, a sort of variation of the rule system, but with the same components. Uh, where you could fight, actually you do it by uh, playing as units. So if you do want to do a mass battle, then that's still an option later down the line. And in addition to just fighting, I mean, there's searching through stuff, there's hacking, there's lockpicking. Um, tell me about why you incorporated these aspects, non-combat aspects, into the game and what their significance is. Uh, to me, that is a really key aspect of, of Fallout. It's not just about the fighting. And in fact, a lot of scenarios, if you're only fighting, you're probably not going to win um, because you, you're probably missing the point of the scenario, which is to get a job done. And the fighting is a, a, as part of it. I mean, on the tournament end of the scale, fighting is the whole thing because that's what tournaments are, are really about. Um, but in terms of the general kind of uh, play of the game, yeah, all those elements were really important. I didn't want to have more systems than were needed. And actually, the skill system um, that we've got for uh, combat it's the same one that we use across the board for all skills. So using that same system, um, you've got your skill number you want to roll under. Um, and actually in the initial game, uh, in the core box, that's you just need one success. Um, you just need to succeed and you have achieved it. I mean, there are some scenarios that require multiple tests, successful tests to, to then have completed, um, uh, maybe closing the vault door or, um, or getting something working. Um, but actually... In, um, in the long term, we will have other uh, more difficult things to hack. Um, and we want equipment too. You, know, you, want, you want things that help you um, hack. You want things that help you search. Uh, stuff like if you've got a flashlight, that may help you find things better. And hacking, you may have a hacking kit. So uh, those effect dice I mentioned with uh, the damage dice, the inaccuracy and the armor reduction dice, they're all actually relevant for all of those different kinds of tests. So if you're doing some hacking, your hacking kit may give you some black dice, which are is extra damage for fighting, but are just extra successes for hacking. So you would actually get more successes because you've got, you know, you roll a black dice with it, so that may help you. And the more difficult things to hack will require more successes to be able to complete them. The accuracy dice means you are more likely to succeed at your hacking test, but won't make it any more uh, any more powerful. And the armor reduction one is a bit like eliminating the defenses of a computer system. So it's interesting that all of the different activities of hacking, lockpicking, and searching with the different three different effect dice are all relevant and actually mean that we can have lots of different types of uh, chat tests that you need to succeed at those things, um, but with one single mechanic behind it and one set of components. So tell me about how much RPG DNA there is in this game, because there is sort of, some people would say, a divide in the marketplace between RPGs and miniatures games, and some people like some aspects of one or the other. To me, it's just, it's game mechanics that represent situations, and it's, I don't see any difference between a combat mechanic of like, I'm just rolling to see if I've hit something or succeeded, compared to I'm rolling to see if I've succeeded at 
uh, opening a lock. I'm more the end of the scale of board games, light miniatures games, um, and role-playing. So I definitely have more of the mindset that I want it to be able to deliver those elements. And it's actually really down to the players as to what scenarios they want to pick. So if they want to pick scenarios that are much more about story um, compared to pure combat, and that's really up to the player. And we've got planned for five link scenarios uh, as an introductory missions, which will actually teach the rules rather than have to learn all the rules first before starting. And then there also are um, scenarios for more kind of pure wargaming as well. But there will be ones online as well. So um, really as many as we can get, get together. But yeah, I really like delivering content. I think that's a really important thing to me. I also understand that you have a campaign system that's going to be part of the game and also that there are quest cards. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I understand they work in the individual scenarios. So I might have a quest that I'm on and it may be um, there's a guy who is a, a synth uh, and uh, he's got a bounty on his head. And it will just say to me, if I can take down um, some play against you, I'm taking your most valuable uh, unit, a model rather. If I can take them out of the game, that's the guy. So if I can take them out, I'll get the reward. So it's just a one-shot little quest. Uh, and you may have a quest as well. And your quest actually is a multi-part quest. And depending on how you do, will determine you know, what happens next. Just a, you know, two or three cards to make up the quest. And they're completely separate to the scenario. So you may be doing something, and I don't know what your quest is. You don't know what mine is. You don't even have to have one if you don't want. Um, and we'll be thinking, why, why has he gone there? Why has he gone up to the top of that tower? Because there's no one there. But actually, you've gone to the top of the tower because your quest is that you need to find out where a guy, you've been following a guy, his tracks have disappeared. So you're trying to get to the highest point to try and spot where he went. So there's all these kind of elements that can mix together, I think, to make some really interesting narrative stories, but still at its heart remains a miniatures game with you know activities to do with plenty of combat, but also um, other actions. James, too. James, I think you may have created the holy grail of a miniatures RPG game. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think you might be right. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that end of the scale, I really would want to hit that because I mean that's that's actually what I would. I personally prefer to play. Yeah, I prefer to play that too. Cool. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope you like it. <laughs> um, yes, I think it's, it's important to deliver that, but not to only be that, because there is the other end of the scale with the tournament-style play where the things like quests wouldn't be in there, the events wouldn't be in there, what you might find in different you know, different locations um, by searching, you know, just scavenging stuff that wouldn't be in there because they're all too random. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's, it's been an interesting challenge to design because it, it needed to... Uh, please quite different um, different requirements you know it can deliver lots of story but it's it's, it's still a war game um, I think people will you know, who don't who wouldn't say they're a war gamer would would play it um, yeah so it's the variety and the story that's within it but still with simple game mechanics and I mean there's, there's a, as a, as we've sort of talked about there's a lot in the game you don't have to play with all of it straight out of the box you don't have to play with all of it for any any particular game um, but it's all there if you want all of that detail. Um, and well, detail is the wrong word. It tends to be a negative word, I think, in some cases. Um, that variety. Richness. Um, yes, that's good. Uh, I'm tired of using the word variety. <laughs> so, yes, richness is very good. It's all about right tool for the right job. There's no winning combination. So you can't go, right, I've got these particular models. That means I will win at every single scenario. And finally, if you were going to pitch this to people who have only played the video game... What's your pitch? I think it's their chance to actually get involved in the, a story against someone else. So when you play the video game, um, there's a limit as to what can happen. I think the uh, ingenuity of other players um, is always fascinating uh, and always evolving. So this really puts you in the Fallout world that people love, but and also allows you to really experience a responsive story. If someone likes the, the video game, this is new content for them. New stories, new situations, but using all the things that they already know, this gives another way to experience it. Um, and lots and lots of rich story. All right. Well, we will be talking more with you, James, as the project uh, continues. And thanks so much for sharing all of this with us today on Modifius Calling. Thanks a lot.
Now might be a good time for listeners to get to know our co-hosts a little bit better. My story's pretty straightforward. Basically, I've been a journalist and a TV producer and a radio producer for many years. And I started talking to Chris Birch, who founded Modifius uh, way back in about 2006. And we came up with an idea for a game based around the 2080 comic book property, Nikolai Dante. Uh, we developed the whole game and never really went anywhere with it. And uh, a few years later, when Chris was putting together Octoon Cthulhu, he called me up and we did a lot of the beginning work on that game. And ever since then, I've worked on a few games, published Terrors of the Secret War for the Octoon Cthulhu line. And uh, I also do the podcasts and some of the video work for Modifius as well. And my interest Introduction to role playing was playing Redbox D&D at my friend Neil's house with his mom as the cleric, his sister, I can't remember, his brother as a fighter, and I think I had a dwarf called Steel Axeman, and his dad was our GM, and uh, pretty much just uh, kept buying games from there. Giles, what was your introduction to role-playing, and then how did you get involved in the actual industry proper? My introduction to role-playing, I remember really distinctly, my uh, local bookstore um, had these colourful books with uh, nice pictures on them and uh, one of my friends saw that one of them was uh, uh, Star Wars and had the West End Games logo on it and he thought that looked rather interesting and I saw one of them had the uh, the words Middle Earth written on it and I, I took that one. So we both bought these games and, and uh, I, I distinctly remember lying in bed and, and reading through the first encounter in the Merp rulebook of uh, these guys exploring a little watchtower and encountering an orc and that was my introduction to role-playing games. I'd played miniatures games previously but that was my introduction to role-playing games. It blew my mind then <laughs> and um, yeah, I haven't looked back. I, I, there was a period of about probably 10, 12 years where I, I hadn't played a role-playing game. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm back the last couple, so very, very pleased to be. Well, how did you get involved in actually being a creator in the role-playing game business? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I always loved um, writing and particularly um, working on ideas for game systems and um, and role-playing games. So I, I'd always done that and, and sort of, uh, unfortunately for my friends, forced them to play far too many probably homebrew games and settings. <laughs> but what really got was, I think, in the last probably five years or so, I'd done some work with Spartan Games. Spartan had a relationship with Modifius, and so I got to know Chris Birch, uh, the owner of Modifius, through that connection. Then that just grew. I, I got involved in writing some things for the Infinity uh, role-playing game, and that's just uh, it's just rolled on from there, really. And tell us about your experience in podcasting, because you are no stranger to this medium. Yeah, <laughs> you know, put a microphone in front of me and um, pretty easy. Yeah, I've, I've been a guest on a lot of different shows. I've been on the Dice Tower and on board games for those people who are board games fans. I occasionally still am on board games. I've run podcasts uh, called the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. I, I ran with Donald Dennis for a good while. Uh, that's still running and he does that now with some other co-hosts. It's a fantastic podcast, well worth listening to if, you, if you're a teacher or a librarian. I've done the Element 270 podcast which was dedicated to Spartan Games and their line of games. And I'm currently on and off again doing um, On Minis Games, which is part of the Inverse Genius uh, stable of, of podcasts. And we're far too infrequent, but we talk about miniatures games, as the name might suggest. What was your sort of big break that allowed you to get into the role-playing games business? Because I know a lot of our listeners probably, you know, if you, if you play games, you probably want to write games. I think it's a couple of things. One is persistence, and, you know, in, in the sense that you just keep working and, and, and work hard. Um, the way I got involved was I was involved with, with um, podcasting and with writing in regards to Spartan Games or writing about as a fan of Spartan Games and their line of games. And through that, I sort of got to talking to uh, Neil, who was the director of Spartan Games um, before they went bankrupt earlier this year. And so, you know, I built up a rapport and a relationship with Neil. I offered to do um, various bits and pieces with that, and that sort of, you know, that relationship grew. I was involved in um, dystopian wars and dystopian legions with 
the Halo Fleet Battles game with um, the fleet action version of Dystopian Wars that um, that they did with running playtest groups for Legions and for Dystopian Wars for different periods of time. Um, and then the opportunity, uh, I think Chris Birch from Modifius was looking at doing the Actung Cthulhu uh, miniatures game and so that was based on the Legions game. I was involved, I suppose, in that to some extent as a rules advisor um, and as a, as a copy editor to some extent. I said to Chris, so, you know, look, if, if there's any other work, you know, in terms of, um, of writing, I'd be keen, to, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested in doing it. I was doing a lot of mechanical sort of stuff and looking at stats and my, one of my, probably one of the things I love the most is, is doing actual writing, like, you know, whether it's writing fluff or background material or, or whatever it might be. So they were just in the process of doing the Kickstarter for the Infinity role-playing game. And so I got the opportunity to write on that line um, and that has just snowballed. So it's it's really, you know, and, and as you know, Josh, you know, it's about persistence and about keeping at it and treating it seriously, hitting deadlines, you know, all of those sorts of things, I think. Um, so I'm very lucky, I think, but I'm also very happy to have been um, had, that, had those opportunities. I was going to say, if you had any advice for people who want to get want to break in, what sort of qualities do they need to have to be taken seriously by people who are professional in the business? Well, first of all, you know, you need to be able to do whatever it is that you're you're going to be doing. You know, whether it's writing or um, you know, if you if you're good at looking at stats and balancing models and, and balancing things mechanically, then then that side of things, I think. Knowing the game and the setting and the the, the universe is important. Um, being in touch with the community is important. But in terms of, if, if, you know, if you're writing for a particular game or for a company or whatever it might be, I think that the biggest things are being dedicated and, and having a good work ethic and being able to hit deadlines. Um, that is really, really important. I work as a teacher during the day and then, you know, I get home, I, I, spend, some, I spend time with my family, of course, and then, you know, 8, 9 o'clock at night, I'll, I'll go into my workspace and, you know, I know that I'm going to spend three to, to five hours doing that. And it's it's a matter of, of doing the next thing. You know, I've done that, tick that off. I've got to now get on to the next piece. Being persistent and dogged and dedicated and uh, making sure that you do your best to hit deadlines. Being clear, I think, is is important. Being open with, with your editors or whoever you're working with is important. And last but not least, I think really important is you get your 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 piece of writing back with lots of comments over it. You've got to be you know divorced enough from from your writing to be able to say, yep, these are the changes I've got to make. Some of them you might agree with, some of them you might not agree with. But at the end of the day, you know you've got to be able to take it all in stride um, without getting upset about it and do what's best for the game line in terms of you know from the editor's point of view or from the owner's point of view. And we're all really excited to have. Modifius calling back again. It's been God, it's been three years since we had uh, the first season of the podcast. What kinds of things do you want to get into with this podcast? Like, what's your goals? What are your dreams for what we're going to cover in this podcast moving forward? I just uh, love talking about the games that we're playing, really. I mean, you know, as much as it's Modifius calling, Josh, I think, you know, we'd talk that you know that this is a podcast as much about um you know the games that we play and and the games that we love playing i i hope that um anybody listening to this is get um you know whether it's advice about game mastering or, or you know even just some some interesting thoughts about what things that they could do um you know yeah it's just really talking about gaming about uh, from both the point of view of the, the player, the game master, and and from the other side of the industry too, hopefully, um, as well. So, yeah, I, I just think uh, that opportunity to talk about gaming from, from all of those different perspectives is really what I'm hoping to get from Modifius Calling. What about yourself? Oh, well, me. I'm just really glad that we're back. Um, we went through a period where uh, there's a lot of work going on in Modifius, a lot of new games coming out. So, for me, I'm just really excited to be back and, like you said, talking about not just our games, but everybody's games and we're going to be talking about mm. games that uh, we're talking about anything that's tabletop and that includes virtual tabletop so if there are games that are coming to the iPad or the iPhone or the PC but they're kind of like tabletop style games then we'll be talking about those and just sort of I think we'll, we're going to talk about every game that isn't a video game basically 
And the tabletop experience, no matter where you're getting it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So, Zach, we've heard from Giles. How did you get involved in roleplay? Well, it was the, I'd say probably early to mid-2000s. Um, I had already been exposed to um, Games Workshop's uh, Lord of the Rings game. And I was entering into a local bookstore, and I saw the 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons starter set. The one... That came with like the tiles and and the the miniature specifically the, the the young black dragon, and I bought it immediately. Um, and after playing it, I realized this was the type of game I wanted to play. It was though I enjoy the miniatures of of the Lord of the Rings game, I which was my first tabletop game. I enjoyed the the role playing storytelling aspect of the Dungeons and Dragons set I had just bought far more than anything that a war game could do for me. Why was that? Um, it's probably just because, like, the war game, I was, you know, Lord of the Rings had just come out. I was, God, I, less than, sometime fifth grade or younger. It's been so long. But just this influence it had on me, this, this grand story from the Lord of the Rings movie really kind of shaped, which was my first experience to also fantasy, really shaped my... Experience my interpretation of what gaming is is what I want is grand storytelling. And so, where did you go from there? I bought a whole host of um, role-playing games. Um, to be honest, I really didn't actually start playing them until about high school. I just didn't have anybody to play with. Hang on, I, this is I bought the Top Secret game back in the '80s, and I bought Traveler, and one science fiction, one is spies, and I never really found anybody who wanted to play those games. So, like. I totally understand what you're saying about like so you you bought all these games you had them you read them cover to cover and then what happened? They sat on shelves. I rolled characters to know how to basically play them, but I really didn't start playing role playing games until I started hanging out at a games workshop store um, in high school and kind of met more people who like to play just games tabletop games in general. And from there, I kind of just pushed the, hey, let's play Dungeons and Dragons. And they're like, okay. And it was history from there. I've, you know, been obsessed with role-playing games ever since I actually finally got to play Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 while I was in high school. And you're on this podcast, uh, one, because we're in a gaming group together, but two, also because you're a fantastic game master. Um, I've always been really impressed by the way you come in, by your style coming games. What do you bring to being a game master? Like, what's your ethos when it comes to running a game for people? Big and dramatic. I like to see players succeed. I never, you know, I'm never going to shy away from killing players if that's, you know, what poor decisions they make, great dice rolls that I, the GM, make. But I want to see them succeed, and I do everything in my power as a game master to have them do big, grand, exciting things. It's like a... It's the storytelling experience. It's not less of thinking of it as a game, but more of that we are telling this tale in some fantasy universe, some sci-fi universe together, and we want it to be big and epic. And also, I understand you're, a, you're sort of a student of history. If you want to tell us about that and how that interfaces with your role-playing. Yes, I am an anthropology student looking to minor in classics, and I typically, any kind of... Hist oddly historical-based settings. When you send a setting that, you know, is kind of historically influenced, but not the typical, you know, Dungeons and Dragons high medieval setting, really interests me. In the sense why playing Call of Cthulhu, one of my favorite games, my favorite setting is Cthulhu Invictus, the one set during the Age of the Antonines. And tell me a bit about, uh, recently we went together to a, uh, to an exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago, which was about medieval arms and armor, and just tell us a story about going to that and kind of like how that impacted your gaming. Me and Josh, we recently went to the re grand reopening of the uh, medieval and renaissance art gallery at the Chicago Art Institute, and we saw a number of things that really inspired us. Um, all of these, you know, this kind of the room set up in this timeline of you know suits of armor and different types of weapons but we one of the things we really saw was a sword gun warhammer cane that we saw this this kind of you know <laughs> hodgepodge of weapons all in a cane and thought we have to incorporate this into a game and it being kind of 
more of it, something from the, the later Renaissance, I had been sitting on it for a while. We thought, of like, we have to play 7C, the second edition. I've been sitting on this game for a while, and this this item, this this strange weapon would be a perfect fit. Really help people visualize what it looked like. The actual handle of the cane was this spiked kind of spike on the back where you'd hold it, kind of like a the spiked end of a war hammer. And as you drew it out of the, you know, the sheath cane, like a standard sword cane, had the sword, but also built into its side by where you hold it, there was, you know, it the barrel was long gone on this, but the actual, the firing mechanism of, you know, a flintlock pistol was attached to it. So you're a, a gentleman who owned this type of item, you'd be able to see the, the highway robber and pull it out and stab him and then shoot him at the same time or flip it around and hit him with the Warhammer. You, you had your options with defending yourself with this thing. It was very interesting to how they wanted to put all, the, the, the craftsmen wanted to put all of these different types of weapons into a single kind of, you know, ob, the, the whole cane, the, the casual, you know, object. So what game did this inspire you to play? The second edition of 7th C. What was it, six, seven hours later after seeing this thing? And tell people, you know, who, who that's by. It's from John Wick Presents. It's by John Wick. Um, it was a cult classic from the, I want to say the mid, late 90s. I never played the first one. Um, I bought it the second edition after seeing its big release at Gen Con uh, 2016. And I'd been holding on to this game for a year, you know, liking the the, pi the the difference of, you know, the pirate nautical theme from standard, you know, fantasy role-playing games. And amazing. I was blown away by the, the system's mechanic, by the universe. Um, everything about this game was fantastic. You're on this podcast. It's your first podcast. What are your goals and dreams for what we will achieve on this podcast, for the topics that we'll discuss and for what we'll cover? I'd love to talk about the, the games that I'm both running and playing, but also I've run a lot of games. I've played in a lot of games. I feel like I have a lot of advice I could give other GMs and players as to, you know, different aspects of this hobby, both, you know, actually playing and interpreting rules and things like that. All right, that's about all the time we have. So this is Josh signing off. All right, well, this has been Giles. Uh, it's been great chatting. And uh, until next time. And this is Zach signing out. Good games and good gaming. Внимание, внимание, говорит и показывает Модифиус.